and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Stephen Smith, an attorney, former board member at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and a longtime member of the National Lawyers Guild. He is the co-host of the nationally broadcast radio show, Law and Disorder, the co-author of the book, Who Killed Che, and the co-editor of Imagine, Living in a Socialist USA. We will discuss his new book, Lawyers for the Left, in the Courts, in the Streets, and on the Air, which is published by OR Books. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Well, thanks, Brian. It's really nice to be with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that uh, my friend and colleague, Ramsey Woodcock, recommended your book and and you as an interview subject. I, I really enjoyed reading the book, which covers a really wide range of different lawyers associated with the political left, as well as reflections from you on sort of your role as a kind of a lawyer and a person working with other lawyers within the left. And I was wondering if we could start by, by you just talking a little bit about the, the process of kind of creating the materials in the book, because it seems like they came from many different sources, many different perspectives, and over a long period of time. So maybe, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. The book involves 23 significant lawyers uh, from my generation of the 60s and then my parents' generation. Um, And it came out of our radio show. You know, I've got a a show with Heidi Bogosian, who was the former executive director of the National Lawyers Guild, and Michael Ratner, who was the former president of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Michael passed away three years ago, but Heidi and I have continued the show. It's called Law and Disorder. And uh, our publisher, Colin Robinson at Orr Books, uh, suggested that we transcribe and edit some of the interviews and make a book out of them. And I had already uh, written uh, several essays about various lawyers, and I wrote some more for the book. And uh, that's, uh, that's where it came from. Although, really, the genesis of the book uh, went beyond the, the uh, radio show. It goes back to 9-11. Um, uh, Michael and I were both very much affected by it. He was jogging past the World Trade Center when the first plane hit. Uh, I was living in Battery Park City uh, at the foot of World Trade Center number one. Had that building fallen over sideways rather than in on itself, it would have crushed me. Uh, I stayed there for a day. I was with my wife and we had a 16-pound cat named Mo and a talking parrot named Charlie Parker. The cops uh, came up and said, you really have to evacuate. And It was hard for us to do it because of the animals. So we stayed for a day, but then the next day they came back and they said, you really have to evacuate. So we put Charlie in his cage. We left Mo behind for a day. We put Charlie uh, in his traveling cage and started walking up to the village to Michael Ratner's house. And along the way, Charlie kept saying to everybody that we passed, it's okay, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, But as you know, it really wasn't okay. Mm. Uh, And uh, subsequent to 9-11, there were a number of uh, horrific laws that were passed uh, that that really crush uh, uh, democracy and the rule of law in our country. And I'd like to talk about that presently. But in any case, uh, when when we saw these... These laws, the first one was the Patriot Act, which you know all about. Um, 
uh, we thought of the idea of having this show and we approached WBAI, one of the stations in the Pacifica network, uh, not-for-profit community radio, uh, with the idea of having a show called Law and Disorder. And they thought it was a good idea. And they put us on every other week. And then they put us on every week. And uh, then we started to grow. So by the time Michael died three years ago, we were on 60 stations nationwide. And now we're on 120. It's uh, lawanddisorder.org for people who want to get it on the internet. And uh, it was out of, uh, like I, I mentioned, the the interviews that we did on the show with with some of these significant lawyers uh, from which the book grew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the people you decided to interview, how, how did you identify the subjects you were most interested in having on the program? Were these largely people you knew or people who had connections to different people in the movement with you? It was both. It was it was people that we knew, but also people that were involved in significant current cases, um, which is a good part of our show, uh, covers the law part and the other part uh, on questions of significant public interest. That's the disorder part. But the <laughs> uh, the law part were, were lawyers that, that we knew uh, and uh, uh, lawyers that I knew about. Uh, but most of the lawyers that we I discuss in the book are people that I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Kunstler is one. Uh, uh, the great African-American judge, Bruce Wright, is another. Um, uh, Myron Beldock uh, is another. Uh, some of these names may be familiar to your listeners. Others uh, probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, uh, they were people that I met in the uh, in the course of, of uh practicing law and being active in the movement. And those were the people that we selected, particularly if they were involved in a case that was important, uh, that was currently going on. Yeah. So maybe you could talk, uh, for about, example, Lynn Stewart. Yeah. 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 So maybe you could talk specifically about some of the people and stories that you think are particularly compelling as a way of giving listeners kind of a taste of what the book is like, because even if people are familiar with some of the names, they may not necessarily know that much about the details or specifics of what particular lawyers have done. Yeah, let me uh, let me talk about uh, two of the lawyers, Len Weinglass and Leonard Boudin, uh, both of whom I knew, uh, and uh, two of the cases they handled and why those cases have current day importance. Um, I write about both of these cases in the introduction to the book. Uh, Len Weinglass was one of the great trial attorneys of his time uh, in the 60s, and 70s, and the 80s, uh, going up to about 10 years ago. And Len had a case in Western Massachusetts uh, that stemmed out of uh, a sit-in at the University of Massachusetts, which was organized by Amy Carter, uh, former President Jimmy Carter's daughter. It was a sit-in organized to prevent the CIA from recruiting on the University of Massachusetts campus. Uh, they were successful in, in doing that. They were arrested and they were going to be put on trial for trespass. Uh, Amy Carter uh, knew Abby Hoffman. Uh, Abby Hoffman knew Len Weinglass from the famous Chicago 7 case. And so Len Weinglass got involved in the case and he put forward what you uh, and your students may know as the necessity defense. The necessity defense allows defendants to put uh, forward 
uh, the proposition that whatever crime they committed was a lesser crime to prevent the commission of a, a larger major crime. And uh, they put that defense forward to uh, defend themselves against the trespass charge, uh, stating that the CIA was a criminal enterprise. And in order to substantiate that assertion, Len called the great American historian Howard Zinn to the stand to talk about the history of the CIA. And he also called to the stand Ralph McGehee, who was a, a renegade CIA agent. And they both testified about the murderous uh, career of the CIA and its role in overthrowing uh, democratically elected governments overseas, its role in assassination, uh, and its role in, in conducting all kinds of illegal activities. And the uh, rural jury, uh, constituting a number of farmers, actually, uh, found in favor of the defendants, and they acquitted them on the necessity defense. Well, why do I raise that? Because the necessity defense is, is coming to the fore again, uh, and is being put forward by climate activists. Uh, the latest uh, victory that they had was in the state of Washington, uh, where some climate activists turned off the valve on a pipeline that was bringing dirty tar sands oil down through the state of Washington from Canada. And uh, uh, they uh, are going to argue, and the judge is going to permit them to argue, that yes, they did commit a crime by turning that valve off, but it was to uh, prevent a greater crime, which is the uh, uh, pollution of the globe. And what we see now is a real echo side and the threat to humanity. So the necessity defense is something that I talk about and, and feature in the article about Lynn Weinglass. Uh, there's another case that I wanted to mention, uh, with your permission, mm -hmm. uh, that Leonard Boudin uh, handled uh, back in the uh, 70s and 80s. The case took 15 years to litigate, including it took eight years in the discovery process. Leonard Boudin was the great constitutional uh, lawyer of his day, and he agreed to represent a small socialist party, the Socialist Workers' Party. Uh, who came to him and said that they were being uh, attacked by the FBI in what they thought was an attempt to destroy them under a program that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover set up called COINTELPRO. You may be familiar with that, mm -hmm. uh, the counterintelligence program. It was initially directed at trying to destroy the Communist Party and, and trying to destroy the uh, Black Freedom Movement and uh, then directed against also the Socialist Workers' Party. So Boudin filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York, and Judge uh, uh, Thomas Griset was appointed to handle the case, a Republican judge. And uh, in the years of discovery, uh, a lot of amazing things were, were brought forward. Uh, 10 million pages of documents were, were disclosed. Judge Grisey called Attorney Boudin up to the bench and he said, Mr. Boudin, you're not going to believe what's in these documents. <laughs> well, what was in the documents? The documents showed that the organization, which was only 3,000 people, including this youth organization, were infiltrated by 300 informers. They were spied on by another 1,300 informers. The FBI sent people to the homes and visit the landlords of the uh, plaintiffs to try to get them evicted. It visited their employers to try to get them fired. 
It spread rumors throughout the movement to try to get other groups to hate them. Uh, it spread rumors inside the movement to try to cause dissension inside of the movement. Uh, it wiretapped 20,000 hours of phone calls. It burglarized their headquarters 200 times. Uh, and the judge was just astounded and appalled that a legal political party would be targeted like that. The government maintained that it had a right to do it, uh, that uh, even if the organization and its members committed no crimes and were acting perfectly legally in advocating the ideas of socialism, because they were socialists, the government had a right to spy on them. The judge didn't agree. Uh, he wrote a terrific decision, and in it, uh, he uh, enjoined the FBI from ever doing this again, and he awarded the Socialist Workers' Party a quarter of a million dollars. So. We have to be naive to think that the government isn't doing this kind of thing again. In fact, they've admitted doing it uh, to uh, uh, Muslim mosques. They've admitted doing it to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and they're, they're doing it. And people should know about the precedent attorney general, which was handed by the great constitutional attorney, Leonard Boudin. Right, right. So, I mean, one thing that, that struck me reading your book was how it seemed like so many of the lawyers you profile in the book have both professional and personal connections and relationships to, to each other. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those relationships, sort of what role, if any, you think they play in the sort of... Um, representation that these lawyers provide and sort of the role of lawyers within the broader political left movement? Well, lawyers play an auxiliary role. Uh, social change uh, comes and always come from below. Uh, and movement lawyers pay attention to what their clients are doing and take direction from their clients. Um, how do uh, we know each other? Well, the National Lawyers Guild is a good uh, place to make connections. Uh, the Lawyers Guild was formed in 1937 by progressive lawyers because the American Bar Association would not allow black people in as members. I don't know if you knew that. Mm. Uh, and the National Lawyers Guild was an integrated uh, organization. Um, so a number of, of the lawyers that, that formed it and joined uh, got to know each other. And... Uh, uh, that was my parents' generation of lawyers. Um, they also formed another organization called the Center for Constitutional Rights. Uh, 29 years later, 1966, uh, called the Center for Constitutional Rights came out of the Civil Rights Movement. And it was organized initially uh, by William Kunstler, uh, who was Martin Luther King's lawyer. He was the great uh, trial lawyer, civil rights lawyer uh, of his times. And uh, he worked with uh, the wonderful uh, professor, Arthur Kanoy, another uh, great constitutional lawyer, Morton Stavis. And they set up the Center for Constitutional Rights, working out of a, a kind of a sleazy office on 42nd Street when it was the center of the uh, uh, porn district in New York back in 66. And they've grown to be quite a substantial organization now. Um, and uh, they've got interns that come in uh, 20 some every year under the Ella Baker program uh, so they've been able to grow and uh, branch out 
and influence uh, several generations of young people uh, who have become movement lawyers. Right. Maybe you could talk a little bit more uh, about the National Lawyers Guild and the Center for Constitutional Rights and their role in sort of your development as a lawyer for the left. In other words, how did your connection with those organizations kind of uh, affect the trajectory of your, your professional career? Well, the, one of the mottos of the National Lawyers Guild is uh, human rights over property rights. And uh, I quickly came to understand when I was an undergraduate in college uh, that you you can't have a true democracy without economic democracy. And, and that is a simple definition of, of socialism. Um, and the National Lawyers Guild had a, a number of people who would consider themselves socialists in it. I joined uh, when I was in law school. Um, (coughs) Their motto is justice is a constant struggle. William Kunstler used to say there are no green pastures. Every generation has its own battles to fight. And when I joined, uh, the civil rights movement was going on and then the anti-Vietnam War movement and the gay movement was going on. Uh, Prior to that, the uh, generation before me uh, represented the labor movement when the uh, CIO was formed and then represented people who were uh, blacklisted uh, by the government because of their political ideas. Uh, And now, of course, the the, uh, current generation uh, is facing two great, really, threats to humanity. I don't want to sound overdramatic, but they really are. The the one, of course, is climate change, uh, and the other is the nuclear threat, and that is the uh, uh, struggle uh, that's going to be waged by the current generation, your students. Uh, the book was was prepared uh, uh, really uh, for those people to read. Uh, lawyers for the left in the courts, in the streets, and on the air is a book aimed at, at young people, young attorneys, uh, young people in college, uh, people coming around the socialist movement now, uh, which is growing tremendously. When When I edited a book five years ago called Imagine Living in a Socialist USA, with my wife, Debbie Smith, and uh, with the great literary agent, uh, Francis Golden, who's now 93 years old. Um, we went up to HarperCollins, who wanted to publish the book, and we went met with the vice president of HarperCollins. It's one of the major publishing companies in the world. It's owned by Rupert Murdoch, by the way, who also runs Fox, uh, uh, the Fox TV network. And we met with the vice president up in his corner office. It was one of those desks, of course, and, and a table, chairs, and he had a couch. And on the couch were two pillows. One pillow had a picture of Queen Elizabeth, but the other picture had a picture of Karl Marx. So I thought to myself, this is an auspicious beginning. And the editor uh, uh, said to me, uh, what's your definition of socialism? And I said, it's both economic and uh, political democracy. And he said, will you take $10,000 as an advance? And I said, yes, we will. But you should know that we're donating the money to the Mumia Abu Jamal defense. So they went ahead and they published the book. Uh, at that time, uh, the uh, polls showed that 49%, this is five years ago, 49% 
of young people under the age of 29 uh, like the notion of socialism better than capitalism. And now the polls show that it's 49% of the entire population. Uh, so the book is, is, I think, a timely intervention into this uh, new understanding that people are, are developing because the theme of the book is that corporate capitalism is increasingly incompatible with the rule of law and with democracy. That's the one thing that I think all the 23 significant lawyers in the book understood. And uh, that was the one thing uh, that they aimed their practice at uh, uh, trying to uh, educate and reverse. Mm-hmm. So one of the themes that came across to me in the book was a sort of relationship between lawyering and the socialist project, which in some ways, you know, law seems like a very conservative profession, which is sort of at odds with socialism in some ways. But you also kind of highlight how lawyers and lawyering can support the goals of the socialist movement. I, I wonder if you could just reflect briefly on the relationship between the two and the sort of tensions, productive and otherwise, between them. Yeah, certainly. I, I want to uh, talk about uh, what the law is, because I think uh, our listeners will understand better if we have a discussion of what is law. Um, William Kunstler was given an award back in 1994 by the criminal defense lawyers in New York City, and Judge uh, 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 Weinstein uh, was also given an award. Uh, and He was a, a really fine um, liberal uh, judge that, that we had on the federal bench. And uh, Kunstler first talked about uh, Judge Weinstein, who was a friend of his. They were classmates at Columbia. They they knew and liked each other. But Kunstler said that he thought that the judge thought that the law was the considered response of a civilized society to the problem of reaching a reasoned and intelligent conclusion to disputes between the state and its citizens or between the citizens themselves. And that, he said, was the liberals' view of the law. But Kunstler said that he had a, a different view. He said, but my view is different. He told the audience that he thought that the law was in fundamental essence nothing more than a method of social control created by a socioeconomic system determined at all costs to perpetuate itself by all and any means necessary for as long as possible. And uh, that's the view that I share. Uh, When I posed that uh, view to uh, Michael Tiger, person my age, a constitutional law, retired professor, wonderful trial lawyer. Uh, and Michael said, well, he's half right, but you can bat 500 and still lead the league. And then he went on to say, he didn't disagree with Kunstler, but he said, you know, they can't rule by just repression alone. Uh, you can't have six cops on every street corner. I mean, you could, but it's awfully expensive and clumsy and it really wouldn't work in the long run. And well, how do they rule? Well, they make certain promises, uh, uh, they develop an ideology. Uh, School children learn uh, that in America, all men are created equal. Uh, well, we know that that's not true. Uh, they're not created equal, and, and it's more than just men, it's women. Um, and in fact, there's not even an equal opportunity uh, anymore. Um, but you have the Bill of Rights. Those are promises they make that you know you have the right to uh, freely associate with each other. You have the right to free speech. Uh, there's a marketplace of ideas. Uh, you know, you get the picture. It's what we grow up um, 
learning, and it's an ideology. It's, it's, a, it's a myth. It covers over the reality. It's what Anatole France said, that the law in all its majest majesty uh, treats equally uh, rich and poor if they get caught sleeping under a bridge or begging for bread in the street. Uh, the law, it, it may be formally equal, but it's, it really doesn't preserve uh, uh, or, or promote equality. And I think that that contradiction is the area that movement lawyers, uh, like the ones I write about in Lawyers for the Left, uh, uh, step into and try to expand and educate and mobilize people around. Mm -hmm. So, so Michael, um, you kind of touched on this already, but I wonder if in closing the interview, you could talk a little bit about sort of what you hope to convey to readers of the book, sort of who you see as the kind of core audience that you want to reach and what kind of, what ideas you want them to take away from the profiles and observations you make in the book. Well, the book the book is is aimed uh, at a certain audience of uh, progressive-minded uh, young people who want to effectuate social change, and uh, that's a constantly uh, growing group now. And it's a group of both men and women. You know, when I went to law school uh, at NYU. I don't know what it was like when you were there. We had 10% of my class were women, and the school bragged about it. Uh, 10%, you know. Um, and just a few years before me, when the great black feminist attorney, Florence Kennedy, applied to Columbia, uh, they turned her down. And she went over and she said, you turned me down. I'm going to sue you because uh, you turned me down because I'm black. And they said, no, we turned you down because you're a woman. So they finally let her in. But uh, uh, she was the only woman in her class. They didn't even have a toilet facility for her. But now things are totally different. And you have, in most law school classes, I don't know what it's like at University of Kentucky. I imagine it's the same. Mm -hmm. Half the classes are women. And uh, uh, they're going to get a lot of wind in their sails in the fight to preserve uh, their right to control their own bodies uh, by reading the interview that I ran to Copeland. Uh, who was one of the attorneys at the Center for Constitutional Rights and fought the, uh, an initial struggle uh, on, on abortion rights. Um, so I think that that there are, are lessons in this book. Uh, this book is, is not only instructive by way of, of lessons, but it's also inspirational. Uh, these are some wonderful people. And... Uh, and I think that if, if people will, will get lawyers for the left, you can go get it by going to orbooks.com. You get it on the Internet. Um, and Ajamu Baraka, for example, said, it's an informative and inspirational insight into the minds of some of the most incredible public servants this country has ever produced. And uh, I think that, that Ajamu, you know, Ajamu ran for vice president with Jill Stein, and he's head of uh, a civil rights organization here in the country. Um, I think that, that if, if people will get the book and take a look at it, Lawyers for the Left, uh, they'll see what I'm talking about. It's, it's really uh, uh, brings, brings to life these 23 wonderful people. And I'm grateful for you, uh, Brian, for allowing me to talk about the book on your show.
Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on the program and making time for the interview. It's been a real pleasure. And um, congratulations on the book. It was, it was really fascinating and a great read. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much, Brian. You take it easy. You, you too. Thanks a lot. Separated and segregated me from the trial when he could have done it in the beginning because the jury was hip. 